Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Mound by H.P. Lovecraft. Volume 3 Even the manuscript, written in retrospect after Zamakona, knew that gold was the most common structural metal of that netherworld and contained limitless loads and veins of it, reflects the frenzied excitement which the traveler felt upon suddenly finding the real source of all the Indian legends of golden cities. For a time, the power of detailed observation left him, but in the end, his faculties were recalled by a peculiar tugging sensation in the pocket of his doublet. Tracing the feeling, he realized that the disk of strange metal he had found in the abandoned road was being attracted strongly by the vast octopus-headed, emerald-eyed idol on the pedestal, which he saw now to be composed of the same unknown exotic metal. He was later to learn that this strange magnetic substance, as alien to the inner world as it was to the outer world of men, is the one precious metal of the blue-lighted abyss. None knows what it is or where it occurs in nature, and the amount of it on this planet came down from the stars with the people, when great Tulu, the octopus-headed god, brought them for the first time to this earth. Certainly, its only known source was a stock of pre-existing artifacts, including multitudes of cyclopean idols. It could never be placed or analyzed, and even its magnetism was exerted only on its own kind. It was the supreme ceremonial medal of the hidden people, and its use being regulated by custom in such a way that its magnetic properties might cause no inconvenience. A very weakly magnetic alloy of it, with such base metals as iron, gold, silver, copper, or zinc, had formed the sole monetary standard of the hidden people at one period of their history. Zamakona's reflections on the strange idol and its magnetism were disturbed by a tremendous wave of fear. For the first time in the silent world, he heard a rumble of very definite and approaching sound. There was no mistaking its nature. It was a thunderously charging herd of large animals. And remembering the Indian's panic, the footprints, and the moving mass distantly seen, the Spaniard shuddered in terrified anticipation. He did not analyze his position or the significance of this onrush of great lumbering beings, but merely responded to an elemental urge toward self-protection. Charging herds do not stop to find victims in obscure places, and on the outer earth, Zamakona would have felt little or no alarm in such a massive grove-girt edifice. Some instinct, however, now bred a deep and peculiar terror in his soul, and he looked about frantically for any means of safety. There being no available refuge in the great gold-patined interior, he felt that he must close the long-disused door which still hung on its ancient hinges and doubled back against the inner wall. Soil, vines, and moss had entered the opening from outside so that he had to dig a path for the great gold portal with his sword. But he managed to perform this work very swiftly under the frightful stimulus of the approaching noise. The hoofbeats had grown louder and more menacing by the time he began tugging at the heavy door itself. And for a while his fears reached a frantic height, as hope of starting the age-clogged metal grew faint. Then, with a creak, the thing responded to his youthful strength, and a frenzied siege of pulling and pushing ensued. Amidst the roar of unseen stampeding feet, 
Success came at last, and the ponderous golden door clanged shut, leaving Zamacona in darkness, but for the single-lighted torch he had wedged between the pillars of a basin tripod. There was a latch, and the frightened man blessed his patron saint that it was still effective. Sound alone told the fugitive the sequel. When the roar grew very near, it resolved itself into separate footfalls, as if the evergreen grove had made it necessary for the herd to slacken speed and disperse. But feet continued to approach, and it became evident that the beasts were advancing among the trees and circling the hideously carving temple walls. In the curious deliberation of their tread, Zamakona found something very alarming and repulsive. Nor did he like the scuffling sounds which were audible, even through the thick stone walls and heavy golden door. Once the door rattled ominously on its archaic hinges as if under a heavy impact, but fortunately it still held. Then after a seemingly endless interval, he heard retreating steps and realized that his unknown visitors were leaving. Since the herds did not seem to be very numerous, it would have been perhaps safe to venture out within a half hour or less. But Zamacona took no chances. Opening his pack, he prepared his camp on the golden tiles of the temple's floor, with the great door still securely latched against all comers. Drifting eventually into a sounder sleep than he could have known in the blue-litten spaces outside, he did not even mind the hellish, octopus-headed bulk of great Tulu, fashioned of unknown metal and leering with fishy sea-green eyes, which squatted in the blackness above him on his monstrously hieroglyph pedestal. Surrounded by darkness for the first time since leaving the tunnel, Zamakona slept profoundly and long. He must have more than made up the sleep he had lost at his two previous camps when the ceaseless glare of the sky had kept him awake despite his fatigue, for much distance was covered by other living feet while he lay in his healthily dreamless rest. It's well that he rested deeply, for there were many strange things to be encountered in his next period of consciousness. Chapter 4 What finally roused Zamakona was a thunderous rapping at the door. It beat through his dreams and dissolved all the lingering mists of drowsiness as soon as he knew what it was. There could be no mistake about it. It was a definite, human, and peremptory rapping, performed apparently with some metallic object and with all the measured quality of conscious thought or will behind it. As the awakening man rose clumsily to his feet, a sharp vocal note was added to the summons. Somebody was calling him out in a not unmusical voice, a formula which the manuscript tries to represent as Oxy Oxy Gathkan Yicha Relex. Feeling sure that his visitors were men and not demons, and arguing that they could have no reason for considering him an enemy, Zamakona decided to face them openly and at once and accordingly fumbled with the ancient latch till the golden door creaked open from the pressure of those outside. As a great portal swung back, Zamakona stood facing a group of about twenty individuals of an aspect not calculated to give him alarm. They seemed to be Indians, though their tasteful robes and trappings and swords were not such as he had seen among any of the tribes of the outer world, while their faces had many subtle differences from that of the Indian type. That they did not mean to be irresponsibly hostile was very clear, for instead of menacing him in any way, 
They merely probed him attentively and significantly with their eyes, as if they expected their gaze to open up some sort of communication. The longer they gazed, the more he seemed to know about them and their mission, for although no one had spoken since the vocal summons before the opening of the door, he found himself slowly realizing that they had come from the great city beyond the low hills mounted on animals, and that they had been summoned by animals who had reported his presence, that they were not sure what kind of person he was or just where he had come from, but that they knew he must be associated with that dimly remembered outer world which they sometimes visited in curious dreams. How he read all this in the gaze of the two or three leaders he could not possibly explain, though he learned why a moment later. As it was, he attempted to address his visitors in the Wichita dialect he had picked up from charging buffalo, and after this failed to draw a vocal reply, he successively tried Aztec, Spanish, French, and Latin, adding as many scraps of lame Greek, Galician, and Portuguese, and the babble of peasant patois of his native Asturias, as his memory could recall. But not even this polyglot array, his entire linguistic stock, could bring a reply of any kind. When, however, he paused in perplexity, one of the visitors began speaking in an utterly strange and rather fascinating language, whose sounds the Spaniard had much difficulty in representing on paper. Upon his failure to understand this, the speaker pointed first to his own eyes and then to his forehead, and then to his eyes again, as if commanding the other to gaze at him in order to absorb what he wanted to transmit. Samacona, obeying, found himself rapidly in possession of certain information. The people he learned conversed nowadays by means of unvocal radiations of thought. Although they had formerly used a spoken language, which still survived as the written tongue, and into which they still dropped orally for tradition's sake or when strong feeling demanded a spontaneous outlet. He could understand them merely by concentrating his attention upon their eyes and could reply by summoning up a mental image of what he wished to say and throwing the substance of this into his glance. When the thought speaker paused, apparently inviting a response, Zamacona tried his best to follow the prescribed pattern but did not appear to succeed very well. So he nodded and tried to describe himself and his journey by signs. He pointed upward as if to the outer world, then closed his eyes and made signs as of a mole burrowing. Then he opened his eyes again and pointed downward in order to indicate his descent to the great slope. Experimentally, he blended a spoken word or two with his gestures. For example, pointing successively to himself and to all of his visitors and saying, un hombre, and then pointing to himself alone and very carefully pronouncing his individual name, Panfilo de Zamacona. Before the strange conversation was over, a good deal of data had passed in both directions. Zamacona had begun to learn how to throw his thoughts and had likewise picked up several words of the region's archaic spoken language. His visitors, moreover, had absorbed many beginnings of an elementary Spanish vocabulary, their own old language was utterly unlike anything the Spaniard had ever heard, though there were times later on when he was to fancy an infinitely remote linkage with the Aztec, as if the latter represented some far stage of corruption or some very thin infiltration of loan words. The underground world, Zamacona learned, bore an ancient name which he recorded in his manuscript as X-I-N-A-I-A-N. From the writer's diacritical marks and explanations, 
I concluded that the word could best be represented to Anglo-Saxon ears by the phonetic arrangement of Kenyan. It is not surprising that this preliminary discourse did not go beyond the merest essentials, but those essentials were highly important. Samakona learned that the people of Kinyan were almost infinitely ancient, and that they had come from a distant part of space where physical conditions are much like those of Earth. All this, of course, was legend now, and one could not say how much truth there was in it, or how much worship was really due to the octopus-headed being, Tulu, who had traditionally brought them thither, and whom they still reverenced for aesthetic reasons. But they knew of the outer world, and were indeed the original stock who had peopled it, as soon as its crust was fit to live on. Between glacial ages they had had some remarkable surface civilizations, especially one at the South Pole near the mountain Kadath. At some time infinitely in the past, most of the outer world had sunk beneath the ocean, so that only a few refugees remained to bear the news to Kinyan. This was undoubtedly due to the wrath of space devils, hostile alike to men and to men's gods, for it bore out rumors of a primordially earlier sinking which had submerged the gods themselves, including great Tulu, who still lay prisoned and dreaming in the watery vaults of the half-cosmic city relics. No man, not a slave of the space devils, it was argued, could live long on the outer earth, and it was decided that all beings who remained there must be evilly connected. Accordingly, traffic with the lands of sun and starlight abruptly ceased. The subterraneous approaches to Kenyan, or such as could be remembered, were either blocked up or carefully guarded, and all encroachers were treated as dangerous spies and enemies. But this was long ago. With the passing of ages, fewer and fewer visitors came to Kenyan, and eventually centuries ceased to be maintained at the unblocked approaches. The mass of the people forgot, except through distorted memories and myths and some very singular dreams, that an outer world existed. Though educated folks never cease to recall the essential facts. The last visitors ever recorded, centuries in the past, had not even been treated as devil spies, faith and the old legendary having long before died out. They had been questioned eagerly about the fabulous outer regions, for scientific curiosity in Kenyan was keen, and myths, memories, dreams, and historical fragments relating to the Earth's surface had often tempted scholars to the brink of an external expedition, which they had not quite dared to attempt. The only thing demanded of such visitors was that they refrain from going back and informing the outer world of Kenyan's positive existence. For after all, one could not be sure about these outer lands. They coveted gold and silver, and these people might prove to be highly troublesome intruders. Those who had obeyed the injunction had lived happily, though regrettably briefly, and had told all they could about their world. Little enough, however, since their accounts were all so fragmentary and conflicting that one could hardly tell what to believe and what to doubt. One wished that more of them would come. As for those who disobeyed and tried to escape, well, it was very unfortunate about them. Samakona himself was very welcome, for he appeared to be a higher-grade man and to know much about the outer world than anyone else who had come down within memory. He could tell them much, and they hoped he would be reconciled to his lifelong stay. Many things which Zamakona learned about Kinyan in that first colloquy left him quite breathless. 
He learned, for example, that during the past few thousand years, the phenomenon of old age and death had been conquered, so that men no longer grew feeble or died except through violence or will. By regulating the system, one might be as physiologically young and immortal as one wished. The only reason why any allowed themselves to age was that they enjoyed the sensation in a world where stagnation and commonplaceness reigned. They could easily become young again when they felt like it anyway. Births had ceased except for experimental purposes, since a large population had been found needless by a master race which controlled nature and organic rivals alike. Many, however, chose to die after a while, since despite the cleverest efforts to invent new pleasures, the ordeal of consciousness became too dull for sensitive souls, especially those in whom time and satiation had blinded the primal instincts and emotions of self-preservation. All the members of the group before Zamakona were 500 to 1500 years old, and several had seen surface visitors before, though time had blurred the recollection. These visitors, by the way, had often tried to duplicate the longevity of the underground race, but had been able to do so only fractionally, owing to evolutionary differences developing during the million or two years of cleavage. These evolutionary differences were even more strikingly shown in another particular, one far stranger than the wonder of immortality itself. This was the ability of the people of Kenyan to regulate the balance between matter and abstract energy, even where the bodies of living organic beings were concerned, by the sheer force of the technically trained will. In other words, with suitable effort, a learned man of Kenyan could dematerialize and rematerialize himself, or with somewhat greater effort and subtler technique, any other object he chose. Reducing solid matter to free external particles and recombining the particles again without damage. Had not Zamakona answered his visitor's knock when he did, he would have discovered this accomplishment in a highly puzzling way. For only the strain and bother of the process prevented the twenty men from passing bodily through the golden door without pausing for a summons. This art was much older than the art of perpetual life, and it could be taught to some extent, though never perfectly to any intelligent person. Rumors of it had reached the outer world in past eons, surviving in secret traditions and ghostly legendry. The men of Kenyan had been amused by the primitive and imperfect spirit tales brought down by the outer world stragglers. In practical life, this principle had certain industrial applications, but was generally suffered to remain neglected through lack of any particular incentive to its use. Its chief surviving form was in connection with sleep, when, for excitement's sake, many dream connoisseurs resorted to it to enhance the vividness of their visionary wanderings. By the aid of this method, certain dreamers even paid half-material visits to a strange nebulous realm of mounds and valleys and varying light, which some believed to be the forgotten outer world. They would go there on their beasts and, in an age of peace, live over the old, glorious battles of their forefathers. Some philosophers thought that in such cases they actually coalesced with immaterial forces left behind by these warlike ancestors themselves. The people of Kenyan all dwelt in the great tall city of Sath, beyond the mountains. Formerly, several races of them had inhabited the entire underground world, which stretched down to unfathomable recesses, and which included, besides the blue litten region, a red litten region called Yoth, 
where relics of a still older and non-human race were found by archaeologists. In the course of time, however, the men of Sath had conquered and enslaved the rest, interbreeding them with certain horned and four-footed animals of the red litten region, whose semi-human leanings were very peculiar, and which, though containing a certain artificially created element, may have been in part the degenerate descendants of those peculiar entities who had left the relics. As eons passed and mechanical discoveries made the business of life extremely easy, a concentration of the people of Soth took place, so that all the rest of Kenyan became relatively deserted. It was easier to live in one place, and there was no object in maintaining a population of overflowing proportions. Many of the old mechanical devices were still in use, though others had been abandoned when it was seen that they failed to give pleasure, or that they were not necessary for a race of reduced numbers whose mental force could govern an extensive array of inferior and semi-human industrial organisms. This extensive slave class was highly composite, being bred from ancient conquered enemies, from outer world stragglers, from dead bodies curiously galvanized into effectiveness, and from the naturally inferior members of the ruling race of Soth. The ruling type itself had become highly superior through selective breeding and social evolution, the nation having passed through a period of idealistic industrial democracy which gave equal opportunities to all, and thus by raising the naturally intelligent to power, drained the masses of all their brains and stamina, Industry being found fundamentally futile except for the supplying of basic needs and the gratification of inescapable yearnings had become very simple. Physical comfort was ensured by an urban mechanization of standardized and easily maintained pattern, and other elemental needs were supplied by scientific agriculture and stock raising. Long travel was abandoned, and people went back to using the horned half-human beasts instead of maintaining the profusion of gold, silver, and steel transportation machines, which had once threaded land, water, and air. Zamakona could scarcely believe that such things had ever existed outside of dreams, but was told he could see specimens of them in museums. He could also see the ruins of other vast magical devices by traveling a day's journey to the valley of Dohna to which the race had spread during its period of greatest numbers. The cities and temples of this present plain were of a far more archaic period and had never been other than religious and antiquarian shrines during the supremacy of the men of Soth. In government, Soth was a kind of communistic or semi-anarchical state, habit rather than law determining the daily order of things. This was made possible by the age-old experience and paralyzing ennui of the race, whose wants and needs were limited to physical fundamentals and to new sensations. An eon-long tolerance, not yet undermined by growing reaction, had abolished all illusions of values and principles, and nothing but an approximation to custom was ever sought or expected. To see that the mutual encroachments of pleasure-seeking never cripple the mass life of the community, this was all that was desired. Family organization had long ago perished, and the civil and social distinctions of the sexes had disappeared. Daily life was organized in ceremonial patterns, with games, intoxication, torture of slaves, daydreaming, gastronomic and emotional orgies, religious exercises, exotic experiments, artistic and philosophical discussions, and the like as the principal occupations. Property, 
chiefly land, slaves, animals, shares in the common city enterprise of South, and ingots of magnetic Tulu metal, the former universal money standard, was allocated on a very complex basis which included a certain amount equally divided among all the free men. Poverty was unknown, and labor consisted only of certain administrative duties imposed by an intricate system of testing and selection. Zamakona found difficulty in describing conditions so unlike anything he had previously known, and the text of his manuscript proved unusually puzzling at this point. Heart and intellect, it appeared, had reached very high levels in the South, but had become listless and decadent. The dominance of machinery had at one time broken up the growth of normal aesthetics, introducing a lifelessly geometrical tradition, fatal to sound expression. This had soon been outgrown, but had left its mark upon all pictorial and decorative attempts, so that except for conventionalized religious designs, there was little depth or feeling in any later work. Archaistic reproductions of earlier work had been found much preferable for general enjoyment. Literature was all highly individual and analytical, so much so as to be wholly incomprehensible to Zamakona. Science had been profound and accurate and all-embracing save in the one direction of astronomy. Of late, however, it was falling into decay as people found it increasingly useless to tax their minds by recalling its maddening infinitude of details and ramifications. It was thought more sensible to abandon the deepest speculations and to confine philosophy to conventional forms. Technology, of course, could be carried on by rule of thumb. History was more and more neglected, but exact and copious chronicles of the past existed in the libraries. It was still an interesting subject, and there would be a vast number to rejoice at the fresh outer world knowledge brought in by Zamakona. In general, though, the modern tendency was to feel rather than to think, so that men were now more highly esteemed for inventing new diversions than for preserving old facts or pushing back the frontier of cosmic mystery. Religion was a leading interest in South, though very few actually believed in the supernatural. What was desired was the aesthetic and emotional exultation bred by the mystical moods and sensuous rites which attended the colorful ancestral faith. Temples to the great Tulu, a spirit of universal harmony, anciently symbolized as the octopus-headed god who had brought all men down from the stars, were the most richly constructed objects in all of Kenyan. While the cryptic shrines of Yig, the principle of life symbolized as the father of all serpents, were almost as lavish and remarkable. In time, Zamakona learned much of the orgies and sacrifices connected with this religion, but seemed piously reluctant to describe them in his manuscript. He himself never participated in any of the rites, save those which he mistook for perversions of his own faith. Nor did he ever lose an opportunity to try to convert the people to that faith of the cross which the Spaniards hoped to make universal. Prominent in the contemporary religion of Soth was a revived and almost genuine veneration for the rare sacred metal of Tulu, that dark, lustrous, magnetic stuff which was nowhere found in nature, but which had always been with men in the form of idols and erratic implements. From the earliest times, any side of it in its unalloyed form had impelled respect. While all the sacred archives and litanies were kept in cylinders 
wrought of its purest substance. Now, as the neglect of science and intellect was dulling the critically analytical spirit, people were beginning to weave around the metal once more that same fabric of awestruck superstition which had existed in primitive times. Another function of religion was the regulation of the calendar, born of a period when time and speed were regarded as prime fetishes in man's emotional life. Periods of alternate waking and sleeping, prolonged, abridged, and inverted as mood and convenience dictated, and timed by the tail-beats of Great Yig, the serpent, corresponded very roughly to terrestrial days and nights. Those Amakona sensations told him they must actually be almost twice as long. The year unit, measured by Yig's annual shedding of his skin, was equal to about a year and a half of the outer world. Zamakona thought he had mastered this calendar very well when he wrote his manuscript, whence the confidently given date of 1545, but the document failed to suggest that his assurance in this matter was fully justified. As the spokesman of the South Party proceeded with his information, Zamakona felt a growing repulsion and alarm. It was not only what he was told, but the strange telepathic manner of the telling, and the plain inference that return to the outer world would be impossible, that made the Spaniard wish he had never descended to this region of magic, abnormality, and decadence. But he knew that nothing but friendly acquiescence would do as a policy. Hence decided to cooperate in all his visitors' plans and furnish all the information they might desire. They, on their part, were fascinated by the outer world data which he managed haltingly to convey. It was really the first draft of reliable surface information they had had since the refugees straggled back from Atlantis and Lemuria eons before, for all their subsequent emissaries from outside had been members of narrow and local groups without any knowledge of the world at large, Mayans, Toltecs, and Aztecs at best, and mostly ignorant tribes of the plains. Zamacona was the first European they had ever seen, and the fact that he was a youth of education and brilliance made him of still more emphatic value as a source of knowledge. The visiting party showed their breathless interest in all he contrived to convey, and it was plain that his coming would do much to relieve the flagging interest of weary Soth in matters of geography and history. The only thing which seemed to displease the men of Soth was the fact that Curious and adventurous strangers were beginning to pour into those parts of the upper world where the passages of Kenyon lay. Zamacona told them of the founding of Florida and New Spain, and made it clear that a great part of the world was stirring with the zest of adventure. Spanish, Portuguese, French, and English. Sooner or later, Mexico and Florida must meet in one great colonial empire, and then it will be hard to keep outsiders from the rumored gold and silver of the abyss. Charging Buffalo knew of Zamacona's journey into the earth. Would he tell Coronado, or somehow let a report get to the great Viceroy when he failed to find the traveler at the promised meeting place? Alarm for the continued secrecy and safety of Kenyon showed in the faces of the visitors, and Zamacona absorbed from their minds the fact that from now on sentries would undoubtedly be posted once more at all the unblocked passages to the outside world which the men of Soth could remember. Chapter 5 The long conversation of Zamakona and his visitors took place in the green-blue twilight of the grove just outside the temple door. Some of the men reclined on weeds and moss beside the half-vanished walk 
while others, including the Spaniard and the chief spokesman of the South Party, sat on the occasional low monolithic pillars that lined the temple approach. Almost a whole terrestrial day must have been consumed in the colloquy, for Zamacona felt the need of food several times and ate from his well-stocked pack while some of the South Party went back for provisions to the roadway where they had left the animals on which they had ridden. At length, the prime leader of the party brought the discourse to a close and indicated that the time had come to proceed to the city. There were, he affirmed, several extra beasts in the cavalcade, upon one of which Zamacona could ride. The prospect of mounting one of those ominous hybrid entities, whose fabled nourishment was so alarming, and a single side of which had set charging buffalo into such a frenzy of flight, was by no means reassuring to the traveler. There was, moreover, another point about the things which disturbed him greatly, the apparently preternatural intelligence with which some members of the previous day's roving pack had reported his presence to the men of Sath and brought out the present expedition. But Zamacona was not a coward. Hence, he followed the men boldly down the weed-grown walk toward the road where the things were stationed. And yet he could not refrain from crying out in terror at what he saw when he passed through the great vine-draped pylons and emerged upon the ancient road. He did not wonder that the curious Wichita had fled in panic and had to close his eyes a moment to retain his sanity. It is unfortunate that some sense of pious reticence prevented him from describing fully in his manuscript the nameless sight he saw. As it is, he merely hinted at the shocking morbidity of these great, floundering, white things with black fur on their backs, a rudimentary horn in the center of their foreheads, and an unmistakable trace of human or anthropoid blood in their flat-nosed, bulging-lipped faces. They were, he declared later in his manuscript, the most terrible objective entities he'd ever seen in his life, either in Kenyan or the outer world, and the specific quality of their supreme terror was something apart from any easily recognizable or describable feature. The main trouble was that they were not wholly products of nature. The party observed Zamacona's fright and hastened to reassure him as much as possible. The beasts were Gyayathin, they explained. Surely they were curious things, but they were really very harmless. The flesh they ate was not that of intelligent people of the master race, but merely that of a special slave class, which had for the most part ceased to be thoroughly human, and which indeed was the principal meat stock of Kinyan. They, or their principal ancestral element, had first been found in a wild state amidst the cyclopean ruins of the deserted, ret-litten world of the Yoth, which lay below the blue-litten world of Kinyan. That part of them was human, seemed quite clear, but men of science could never decide whether they were actually the descendants of the bygone entities who had lived and reigned in the strange ruins. The chief ground for such a supposition was the well-known fact that the vanished inhabitants of Yoth had been quadrupedal. This much was known from the very few manuscripts and carvings found in the vaults of Zin beneath the largest ruined city of Yoth. But it was also known from these manuscripts that the beings of Yoth had possessed the art of synthetically creating life and had made and destroyed several efficiently designed races of industrial and transportational animals in the course of their history, to say nothing of concocting all manner of fantastic living shapes for the sake of amusement and new sensations during the long period of decadence. 
The beings of Yoth had undoubtedly been reptilian in affiliations, and most physiologists of Soth agree that the present beasts had been very much inclined toward reptilianism before they had been crossed with the mammal slave class of Kenyon. It argues well for the intrepid fire of those Renaissance Spaniards who conquered half the unknown world that Pamphilo de Zamacona y Nunez actually mounted one of the morbid beasts of Soth and fell into place beside the leader of the cavalcade. The man named Gil Hathayin, who had been most active in the previous exchange of information. It was a repulsive business, but after all, the seat was very easy and the gait of the clumsy Gyayoth surprisingly even and regular. No saddle was necessary, and the animal appeared to require no guidance whatever. The procession moved forward at a brisk gait, stopping only at certain abandoned cities and temples about which Zamakona was curious, and which Gil Hathayan was obligingly ready to display and explain. The largest of these towns, Magra, was a marvel of finely wrought gold, and Zamakona studied the curiously ornate architecture with avid interest. Buildings tended toward height and slenderness, with roofs bursting into a multitude of pinnacles. The streets were narrow, curving, and occasionally picturesquely hilly, but Gil Thayan said that the later cities of Kinyan were far more spacious and regular in design. All these old cities of the plains showed traces of leveled walls, reminders of the archaic days when they had been successfully conquered by the now-dispersed armies of Sath. There was one object along the route which Gil Hathayan exhibited on his own initiative, even though it involved a detour of about a mile along a vine-tangled side path. This was a squat, plain temple of black basalt blocks without a single carving and containing only a vacant onyx pedestal. The remarkable thing about it was its story, for it was a link with a fabled elder world compared to which even cryptic Yoth was a thing of yesterday. It had been built in imitation of certain temples depicted in the vaults of Zin to house a terrible black toad idol found in the red-litten world called Sathagua in the Yothic manuscripts. It had been a potent and widely worshipped god, and after its adoption by the people of Kinyan had lent its name to the city, which was later to become dominant in that religion. Yothic legend said it had come from a mysterious inner realm beneath the red-litten world, a black realm of peculiar-sensed beings which had no light at all, but which had had great civilizations and mighty gods before ever the reptilian quadrupeds of Yoth had come into being. Many images of Sath Hagua existed in Yoth, all of which were alleged to have come from the black inner realm and which were supposed by Yothic archaeologists to represent the eon-extinct race of that realm. The black realm called Nikai in the Yothic manuscripts had been explored as thoroughly as possible by these archaeologists, and singular stone troughs or burrows had excited infinite speculation. When the men of Kenyan discovered the red-lit world and deciphered its strange manuscripts, they took over the Sathagua cult and brought all the frightful toad images up to the land of blue light, housing them in shrines of yoth-quarried basalt like the one Zamakona now saw. The cult flourished until it almost rivaled the ancient cults of Yig and Tulu, and one branch of the race even took it to the outer world 
where the smallest of the images eventually found a shrine of Olatho in the land of Lomar near the Earth's North Pole. It was rumored that this outer world cult survived even after the great ice sheet and the hairy Gnathkes destroyed Lomar, but of such matters, not much was definitely known in Kenyan. In that world of blue light, the cult came to an abrupt end, even though the name of Sath was suffered to remain. What ended the cult was the partial exploration of the black realm of Nakai beneath the red-litten world of Yoth. According to the Yothic manuscripts, there was no surviving life in Nakai, but something must have happened in the eons between the days of Yoth and the coming of men to the earth, something perhaps not unconnected with the end of Yoth. Probably it had been an earthquake, opening up lower chambers of the lightness world, which had been closed against the Yothic archaeologists, or perhaps some more frightful juxtaposition of energy and electrons, wholly inconceivable to any sort of vertebrate minds, had taken place. At any rate, when the men of Kenyan went down into Nakai's black abyss with their great atom-powered searchlights, they found living things, living things that oozed along the stone channels and worshipped onyx and basalt images of Sathagua. But they were not toads like Sathagua himself. Far worse, they were amorphous lumps of viscous black slime that took temporary shapes for various purposes. The explorers of Kenyan did not pause for detailed observation, and those who escaped alive sealed the passage leading from the red-lit Yath down to the gulfs of nether horror. Then all the images of Sathagua in the land of Kenyan were dissolved into the ether by disintegrating rays, and the cult was forever abolished. Eons later, when naive fears were outgrown and supplanted by scientific curiosity, the old legends of Sathagua and Nakai were recalled, and a suitably armed and equipped exploring party went down to Yoth to find the closed gate of the Black Abyss and see what might still lie beneath. But they could not find the gate, nor could any man ever do so in all the ages that followed. Nowadays there were those who doubted that any abyss had ever existed, but a few scholars who could still decipher the Yothic manuscripts believed that the evidence for such a thing was adequate, even though the middle records of Kenyan, with accounts of the one frightful expedition into Nakai, were more open to question. Some of the later religious cults tried to suppress remembrance of Nakai's existence and attached severe penalties to its mention, but these had not begun to be taken seriously at the time of Zamanakona's advent to Kenyan. As the cavalcade returned to the old highway and approached the low range of mountains, Samakona saw that the river was very close on the left. Somewhat later, as the terrain rose, the stream entered a gorge and passed through the hills, while the road traversed the gap at a rather higher level close to the brink. It was about this time that light rainfall came. Samakona noticed the occasional drops and drizzle and looked up at the coruscating blue air but there was no diminution of the strange radiance. Gil Hathayan then told him that such condensations and precipitations of water vapor were not uncommon, and that they never dimmed the glare of the vault above. A kind of mist indeed always hung about the lowlands of Kenyan and compensated for the complete absence of true clouds. The slight rise of the mountain pass enabled Zamakona, by looking behind, to see the ancient and deserted plain and panorama as he had seen it from the other side. He seems to have appreciated its strange beauty, 
to have vaguely regretted leaving it behind, for he speaks of being urged by Gilhathayan to drive his beast more rapidly. When he faced frontward again, he saw that the crest of the road was very near, the weed-grown way leaning starkly up and ending against a blank void of blue light. The scene was undoubtedly highly impressive, a steep green mountain wall on the right, a deep river chasm on the left with another green mountain wall beyond it, and ahead the churning sea of bluish coruscations into which the upward path dissolved. Then came the crest itself, and with it the world of Soth outspread in a stupendous forward vista. Samakona caught his breath at the great sweep of peopled landscape, for it was a hive of settlement and activity beyond anything he had ever seen or dreamed of. The downward slope of the hill itself was relatively thinly strewn with small farms and occasional temples, but beyond it lay an enormous plain covered like a chessboard with planted trees, irrigated by narrow canals cut from the river, and threaded by wide geometrically precise roads of gold or basalt blocks. Great silver cables borne aloft on golden pillars linked the low spreading buildings and clusters of buildings which rose here and there, and in some places one could see lines of partly ruinous pillars without cables. Moving objects showed the fields to be under tillage, and in some cases Zamakona saw that men were plowing with the aid of the repulsive half-human quadrupeds. But most impressive of all was the bewildering vision of clustered spires and pinnacles which rose afar across the plain and shimmered flower-like and spectral in the coruscating blue light. At first, Zamakona thought it was a mountain covered with houses and temples like some of the picturesque hill cities of his own Spain, but a second glance showed him it was not indeed such. It was a city of the plain, but fashioned of such heaven-reaching towers that its outline was truly that of a mountain. Above it hung a curious grayish haze through which the blue light glistened and took added overtones of radiance from the million golden minarets. Glancing at Gil Hathayan, Zamakona knew that this was the monstrous, gigantic, and omnipotent city of Soth.